So I'm going to give it my best shot today and give you what I think the Lord has for us today in Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13 and verse 20. So I found this interesting little thing about uh, this little little story about uh, these guys were standing on the top of the Empire State Building in New York City. And the first guy says to the second, you know, the wind currents are so strong here in New York City that one could step off the edge of the building and literally float in midair due to the upward thrust of the thermal air current. No way, man. You're crazy, said the second guy to the first. So the first guy steps off the ledge, the edge in the building, and just floats in midair for about 20 seconds and then returns back to the roof of the building next to the fella. And the second guy says, uh, is so simply thrilled, and he says, watch me do that. And he steps off of the edge of the roof into the open air, and of course he falls like a stone straight down all the way to the waiting pavement below. Splat. The second guy, who's remained quiet up until now, the entire time, leans over to the first guy and says, you know something? Sometimes you can be a really cruel guy, can't you, Superman? Have you ever wanted to be a superhero? Did you ever pretend to be one as a child? Come on, let's be honest. I spent uh, yesterday morning and Friday night with three uh, four grandchildren, actually three on Friday night, and then one got in uh, later uh, with his dad. He had gone to a conference, and so uh, they have superheroes, and superheroes today are different than when I was a kid. Uh, they're about Star Wars figures and Darth Vader's and all kinds of stuff like that, but you know, when I was a kid, it was Superman and Batman and Robin, and they seemed to have superpowers, and And we often uh, like to dress up and pretend as if we ourselves had superpowers. There's something about us when we were children. We want to sort of feel or seem as if we are invincible, indestructible, unstoppable. And that we can do incredible feats that, that just sort of defy gravity and defy our human limitations. You know what I'm talking about? You don't know what I'm talking about? I would like to see your pajama drawer. I bet some of you have pajamas that are superhero pajamas that you only wear in the privacy of your home. I've seen them on my grandchildren. I wish they made them for adults. I would definitely would have had some on this morning. We could have made Sunday this morning pajama day. That would have been kind of frightening, wouldn't it? But uh, I think there's something inside all of us. Come on, guys. We're still boys on the inside of these aging adult bodies, aren't we? And we want to be invincible. The church of Jesus Christ has been promised by Christ himself to be invincible, indestructible, unstoppable. And I think this is an important passage for us as I studied for, you know, kind of put that other sermon aside that I had ready for today is to help us and myself understand the invincibility of the church. Uh, one of the things that I have grown aware of more as I have grown older and, and I pray for about, I don't know, 35, 40 pastors on Sunday mornings by name. It, it takes some time. Um, and, and there are some Sunday mornings like today when I'm not quite as prepared as I want to be or need to be. I, just, I, I don't know. I could always use more preparation time even no matter when I get up on Sunday morning. I never feel quite ready. It's kind of how the Holy Spirit kind of does it. Because if you get up and feel completely ready, you might not rely on the Holy Spirit. So, and, and I pray for these guys and I call them out by name. And it's been amazing to me how many pastors are discouraged in the ministry today. I've been doing this for a long time, 39 years. And the ministry today is harder than it has ever been. It's different. And there's a generation that's coming up that has no idea how good we had it 39 years ago. I mean, I went to a seminary, Southwestern Seminary, where there were 6,000 students there. It was, we were experiencing a revival. Church was something that was a part of people's agenda. It was a part of the to-do list on the weekends. And it was not uncommon for people to just come to church out of habit, out of, out of discipline. But today, it's a different day. 
And with all the stresses and strains and the changes in our culture, our society, I, I'm seeing that more and more pastors are more and more discouraged because their churches are not growing at the level that they would like them to grow. The pressures of the ministry are huge. And they're beginning to feel these pressures economically and socially and, 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 and personally. And it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's an epidemic. And I shoot them prayers in the morning, and some of our pastors get those prayers. And I've noticed, I don't know if you guys have noticed the last eight or nine weeks, they've been more positive than ever before about the sovereignty of God and the, the power of God who reigns and rules on a throne, who is, is, is a God that you can count on, rely upon, and depend upon because it is God and God alone who grows his church. I think we have a tendency, I think, sometimes to move in ministry, and especially as pastors, as, 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 as a people, if we're not careful, to seek to somehow grab the steering wheel and pretend as if we are the masters of our own universe, and we can manage growth, we can force growth, and we can make growth happen. And we jokingly say, at least I do, in, this, in, in staff meetings and strategy meetings and things that we talk about, I know how to fill this auditorium. You want to know how you can fill this auditorium? Offer a six-pack of free beer next Sunday. That'll grow the church. Well, we, we couldn't pack. I mean, there wouldn't be a seat left in this house if the word got out. Some would come just to see Emmanuel do that. <laughs> you know, and there are methods and means that often pastors and a people try to revert to in order to to, to move the church into filling up the places and the spaces and the vacancies and, and to generate people and income and, and all of these things that I think uh, we often place ourselves under this pressure that is really not biblical at all. Because you see in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, there's this incredible discussion between Christ and his disciples in a very much an alone time because Jesus is very much aware of even in the day in the moment and the time of his ministry and the ministry that will soon come when he departs and leaves them by themselves that there's, there's going to be this incredible pressure from not only the culture but from the enemy and there's there's going to be some tough times some hard times that are coming and it's not going to be easy to be a, a disciple, much less to be a disciple who's been charged to take the gospel and to make disciples to the ends of the earth. And he's trying to instill in them some concepts and some understandings that will help them through the difficult, tough, hard times of ministry and, and, and seeing maybe incredible growth, but also incredible stagnation and difficulty, persecutions and hardships. It's not by accident that he writes this in his gospel account as Matthew is beginning to help us understand these, these concepts about the conquering church. And, and, and some of us might say, well, what does this have to do with me as an individual? If you're a part of this church or you're a part of any church, this has to do with you as a part, as a member of that church. While we are individual members of the body of Christ, uniquely placed and gifted and used by God in the body of Christ, we are still one, we are still a church. And despite of all the weaknesses and the frailties and the, the hardships and even the accusations against the church, the church is still a vital part of the way that God uses in order to reach a culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the assembling of yourselves together in that habit that God somehow orchestrates and moves this incredible gospel throughout the ends of the earth. It's his church, and we are to be a part of that church, to be connected to that church, to not just be members of that church, but to support that church with our gifts and our offerings, to be able to see God then move through his church, because that is what I believe he came to establish, is a church where people who come to faith in Christ gather together on a regular basis because we need that rhythm. You need it. And we're going to talk about some of that in the month of January, about the church itself and how I'm connected to that and what my responsibility is to the church. But this invincibility is described in verse 18, one verse we're going to look at. And 
And uh, I know Clyde and some of those have seen the, the points already, and you are excited. There are only three points today, but I guarantee you I have 20 sub-points for each point. So buckle up, and here we go. All right. Christ's conquering church is invincible because, number one, we have an anchor for our faith. We have an anchor for our faith. And I keep thinking about the anchor holds. Anybody old enough to know what that song is? The anchor holds. There, there's, a, there's a security, there, there is an assurance, there is something that happens here. There's an anchor that sort of anchors us as a church in our faith. Our faith has an anchor. There's something that, that holds us to something, and that something is a someone, and that someone is Jesus. Jesus is our rock. He is our anchor in troubled times, in triumphant times, in successful times, and in hard times. He is the anchor, the ever non-changing, permanent, pre-existent, always the same Jesus, who is our Savior and who is our King. And He is our anchor. How do we see that in verse 18? First of all, there are three aspects about this anchor. We see, first of all, the Word of Jesus is an anchor that we can sink our faith into and anchor our lives upon. Jesus says, I tell you. Don't, don't, don't read over that quickly. That is, that is huge. I, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, I tell you. When Jesus says something, it should be in red letters. And some of us used to know what those Bibles looked like. They had the, the words of Jesus were in the red letter editions. You know what I'm talking about? Because they were significant. They came, came from not only Jesus, but they came from the Son of God. And, and God who was preexistent when he speaks, he speaks the word of truth. And this word is true. He is saying, I tell you. And it, it, it's a statement that Jesus is making that is so significant that he wants his disciples to understand, guys, listen to the word that I'm about to say because it is significant. But the reality is that every word that Jesus ever spoke is always significant. I mean, there was a centurion in Matthew 8 who understood the power of the words of Jesus. When he had a slave who was near death and he came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, I don't need you to come. Just speak a word and your word alone will heal him. The words of Jesus are so powerful that they are words of life. They are words that bring forgiveness. They are words that bring healing. And Simon Peter has just made an incredible statement where he has declared his faith and who he believes that Jesus is after having watched and participated with Jesus in ministry. Now Jesus then turns to his disciples and said, I tell you, pay attention you may not be able to find a place to write a note, but you need to write this down. <laughs> it's significant. It's emphatic. I tell you, the words of Christ have power. And the reason I want to sort of highlight this here is because in the words that we're about to study, these are the words of Christ. Christ's words have power power. They have significance. They have meaning, not only to the church itself, but to the individual member of the body of Christ, the church. There are power. There's power in these words. I tell you, my disciples. These are not words to anyone else other than to his disciples. I want to tell you something as my disciples, and this is important. It's powerful. You are Peter. I took a look at that, and I see the work of Jesus is also equally powerful in that it's a transformational work. Some of the scholars that I read in the last couple of days seem to suggest that Jesus is, is not only addressing Simon Peter himself, but he's addressing all the 12 disciples here. He's not just zeroing on Simon Peter. Simon Peter was the one who echoed what the others believed Jesus to be. And Jesus goes around and, and, and sort of asks, some believe that he invited and asked several to respond. Not just Simon Peter, but Simon Peter's always the one who sort of takes the initiative and speaks for everyone else. And so Simon Peter steps up and he speaks, and so Jesus addresses him. And I think it's an address where Jesus is not only reminding Simon Peter, but he's reminding the other disciples what their lives were like before they met him. Remember what your life was like before you met me. You see, there's a transformational work that has happened in Peter's life. Remember John chapter 1, I think it's verse 42. Before that, Andrew discovers Jesus. 
Anybody know who Andrew is? Simon Peter's brother, right? Andrew's the first evangelist really described in the Bible, and he runs and he seeks out his brother, right? You got to believe, you, you, you got to come see, man. We have found the Christ. And at that first encounter with Jesus, what does Jesus do? He changes his name to Cephas, which means Peter, which means the rock. And Jesus, I think, as he begins to make this statement, is reminding his disciples, as well as Simon Peter, as well as those of us who are reading this today, you remember the work that I did that has transformed your life, that has taken you, taken you from unbelief to belief. Because Peter, we're going to read it in a minute, Peter made an incredible belief, of an incredible faith statement. And, and Jesus said, the only way you could have made that, Peter, is, is my heavenly Father has revealed it to you. You didn't discover this in the flesh on your own. God has revealed it to you, who I am, my identity, and you have placed your faith in me. And that encounter with me as the person of Christ has transformed your life. And so this anchor is not only found in the word of truth, but in the work of transformation, in that, in that God is continually, constantly transforming us. And I think he's making this statement to his disciples as I, as I sort of still kind of so processing this in my own heart and my own mind, he, he's moving them deeper in their faith and their understanding as to who they are and who he is to them. You are. I've worked in your heart and life. You are already Cephas. You are already Peter. You are a pebble. You are a part of what I want to use, Simon, to build my kingdom. Andrew went to Peter, and Peter came to Christ, and Christ is going to use Peter, and it's a trickle-down effect. And I think as this, this passage really is one of the most debated passages really in the New Testament. I don't know if you know that or not. And Catholics like to think that Simon Peter is, is the one in which Jesus built the rock upon, and it was only Simon Peter, which they believe they are built upon Simon Peter and, and their faith, the Catholic faith, and therefore that's why they're the true church, and all other churches are not true churches. Because we're not built upon Peter. The reality is, just Jesus is saying, I have done a transformational work, and not only you, Peter, but all the other disciples who are here, and you are going to be the pebble, one of the many that I'm going to use, who's going to proclaim the gospel to an unreached people group who will place their faith and trust in what you have just said, and they too will become a part of what I am building. And he's helping Simon Peter understand and helping us understand that we are a part of the work that God wants to use in building his church. I wish it were different because people are people and we are often not reliable. We are often not dependable. We are sometimes selfish and self-centered and lazy. We sometimes sleep late. You know, we, we go to bed late at night and sleep long hours in the morning like today. And we don't get up on January 1 and come to church because we're up parting, you know, into the new year. People are people and we're messy. And yet we're the instruments and the vessels that God seeks to use to build his church. And if we don't become those vessels that allow ourselves to be transformed by the supernatural work of the Spirit of God through the person of Jesus Christ in our lives, then, then who else is he going to use other than his disciples to build his church? And we who are a part of this body, this church called Emmanuel, God has grafted us into this vine for the specific purpose of using our talents and our treasures for the building up that he wants to do in the church that he has established called Emmanuel Baptist Church. See, it's greater than just me. It's greater than just you. It's about us as a church. And then notice the way that he describes you are Peter, and on this rock, on this rock, on this rock. 
That word on this is a preposition of location. And he's saying, Simon Peter, you are the the, the little rock. You are the pebble. You are the quarry. But I am the, the rock. And he made this statement in a region just 25 miles north of, of the Sea of Galilee near Mount uh, Herod. Uh, he- not Herod. Huh? Hebron. I'm sorry. Mount Hebron. I had a locked mine on Herod. But on Mount Hebron, and, and it was in a geographic location where where maybe the possibility he may have pointed to a large rock. He said, Peter, you're this, but, but I, I'm building my church on this, on something larger than you, on a rock. And this is where many believe he's talking to Simon Peter, thinking that you're the rock. But I'm of the contention of believing that there's, there's two other opportunities or possibilities for defining or interpreting the rock. And it could be the person of Jesus Christ. There are many scholars who want us to believe that that is true, and it could be the person of Jesus, but it also could be the gospel that he has just declared because Simon Peter has made this incredible faith statement. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus is of divine origin. He is the Son of God. He is the conquering King. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, and we believe that you are the Son of God, the Christ, the promised anointed one. That's the gospel in a nutshell. They have watched Jesus, and they come to believe, and their faith has grown to the point where the work of the Spirit of God has transformed them. They have come to the conclusion that he is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. But I look at this and I say, how can you separate the person of Jesus and the gospel of Christ? You can't separate the two, can you? I don't think you can because you can't talk about Christ without talking about the gospel. And you can't really talk about the gospel without talking about Christ. And so the two are inseparable. So the rock that he's saying that I'm building my church upon is the person of Jesus Christ found the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does he build his church upon? What is the foundation of the church? It is the person of Christ and the gospel according to Christ. He builds his church on this magnanimous rock that is unstoppable, that is unmovable, that is invincible. Notice Matthew 16, 13. Let's just quickly read this real quick. It says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? That is, he loves that title, Son of Man. It's one of his most favorite ones. But who do people say that I am, the Son of Man? Kind of an interesting question. Nobody can seem to understand why Jesus, out of the blue, is there walking in this region north of the Sea of Galilee, about 25 miles in the, in the mountainous region, he turns to them without any explanation and just say, who do people say that I am? Do you think Jesus knew who people were saying that he was? I think he, he did. He's not asking because he's unintelligent. He's asking them because he's bringing them to somewhere else. It's sort of a, a back way of getting to where he wants them to go, I believe. Jesus is very intentional. And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. It's interesting, too, that the disciples don't tell Jesus any of the bad things that people are saying about him. You notice that? I mean, there were some bad things that some people said about Christ. And they, they, they take another route. And they, they describe a group of people that have, that have said, well, maybe he's from God. Maybe he's of God. Maybe he's one of the prophets. But they fall short in acknowledging that Jesus is actually the Christ, the Son of the living God. They, they don't quite get there. there there's, a, there's, a, there's a place or there's something in which they're missing. They, they believe he, they elevate him to here, but they don't elevate him to his rightful place. And then Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? And that's always the important thing to ask. What is your personal belief about me? Because it's easy for us to say, well, he says this and she says this, and then never say what we actually believe. Because Jesus is a personal Christ, and he came to change us personally. Who do you say, my disciples? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies for everyone. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the conquering king, the son, the descendant, the divine 
descendant of the living God. And Jesus then answers to them. He says, Simon, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He reflected authentic faith, but this authentic faith was reflected only because it was revealed by the Father. Where did he get this insight? Not on his own, apart from God, but with God's help. Our faith in Christ is grounded on his word, is accomplished by his transformational work, and it is, it is provided for by the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And he, the person of Jesus Christ, and his way is the rock by which we build our church. And the reason I have a sort of struggle with this in the last several months as we've, as pastoral staff, we've been kind of figuring out where we're going in 2017, and we're going to unfold that for you in the month of January as we kind of go along a little bit further on. But um, there are a lot of churches that, that sort of try to um, look as... <laughs> Look at methods and programs and ministries and activities that generate growth outside of, of what I believe is the best way to generate growth, and that is a dependence upon Christ himself. I mean, lights are good, and big screens are okay, and, you know, blue jeans, you know, Whatever. But is that, that really what we rely upon? Is that what we really anchor? Is that what we really put our faith and our hope in that's going to generate activity of the Spirit of God, bring a movement of God to draw people into the kingdom of God and become a part of the church? And in, and in troubled times, Emmanuel Baptist Church, for some of us have been here during the troubled times, what has anchored our faith? Christ, the solid rock who never changes. His word that is always true. His work that is continually transforming lives in the way that never changes. Through the power of the gospel. And we, we, need, to, we need to enter, I believe, in a new dimension, a new era as a church in which we are more anchored in the person of Jesus Christ because I think times are going to get harder, not easier for the church. I think there's a lot of evangelicals that are putting incredible hope in our president-elect, thinking that he is going to help the church and we're going to have a prosperous time as a church under new leadership. But I, I don't find that to be true. Our answer is not found in a new president. Our answer as a church is not found in a new program. Our answer is not found in a new method. Our answer is not found in a, a humanistic thing. Our answer is found in the person of Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel of Christ that transforms lives. We need to anchor ourselves in the person of Jesus and rely upon his word and his work and proclaim the way of salvation in order for us to see the advancement of the gospel in ways in which I believe God wants our church to move. Number two, we have an assurance of our, faith, of our future. There's an assurance of our future. If we will anchor our faith in the person of Christ, in the gospel of Christ, there is an assurance for the church that does that. It will have a bright future. Interesting, it says in verse 18, Jesus, these are the words of Jesus. He said, I will build my church. He says, I who builds his church? Come on, church. Who builds his church? Jesus builds his church. The pastor doesn't build the church. The pastors don't build the church. Jesus alone builds the church. I build my church. I, Jesus, I alone. He doesn't really need help at all. We get to help him, and we have responsibility and assignments, and we have gifts to offer and, and things to bring to the table. But in, in, in the end, the bottom line, when it's all said and done, at the end of the game, when we're standing before Christ, giving account of our lives, it is he and he alone who builds the church. I, Jesus, build my church. Who builds you up in Christ? 
He builds you up in Christ. Who builds his church? He does. I, Jesus, his presence is sure. I will build my church. Matthew 28, 29, he says, and he's given out the Great Commission. He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always. If, if we don't have the presence of Christ with us, how is our church going to be built up if he is the one who builds up the church? I, Jesus, build my church. Notice the promise of the text, I will build my church. He doesn't say, I might. There's a strong possibility, just maybe if there's a chance, I might do something. But he says, I will. That word will is stating an action of an expected outcome that is sure to come in the future. He said, I will do it. And when Jesus said, I will do it, you can take it to the bank. He will do it. Emmanuel Baptist Church, Jesus will build his church. It's not up to us. He will build it. Now, keep in mind that we, we get to come alongside of him and be responsible and, and walk alongside and, and, and offer what he's given to us to, to, to facilitate in that. But he will build it. When will this building be filled? When he wills it to be done, it will. I will build my church. Notice not only I will build my church, but I will build, I will build, I will build that word build. That means to make something happen. That means to strengthen. That means to make it out of nothing. That means to develop, to expand, to, to add to the church. The church is not a facility. The church is not a building. The church is made up of people, and Jesus is building his, his church by building people. And as he adds to the church, the church is built up. And as those disciples grow spiritually, the church is built up. He builds it with people. I think sometimes the generation that I belong to and the ones a little older than me, we're the builder generation. We have this tendency to believe that the church is about buildings, and, and we got a lot of building. Can, can I get an amen to that? You can get lost in this church. That's, that's why we gave you a map. We're thinking about a GPS. You can get on your phone. They're probably in some parts of the basement down there. They're so, so bad now you can't get reception, so that's not going to help you out. And we put maps across the area. You are here, you know, so you can know where you are. And if you're a guest in our church, good luck. You know, and well, we've built a lot of building at Emmanuel Baptist Church, and it takes a lot of funds to keep this building going. You know, in the summertime, it takes $17,000 a month just to turn the lights on. $17,000 in August to turn the lights on. We budgeted $150,000 a year for electricity. It's a lot of money. We've got a lot of building. And I'm convinced that God allowed us to build this building because God wants this building here. But let's not ever forget that the building is, <laughs> that he's doing is not about a building. It's about people. And we need to be in the people business, not in the facility business. And he's going to build his church. He's going to build it up. But notice he said, I will build my church. I will build my church. Whose church is it? Come on, whose church is it? It's his church. Emmanuel Baptist Church belongs to Christ. And sometimes, the longer we're here, the more we think we own the church. Now, don't get me wrong, I think we have to have a responsibility and we have to sort of feel responsible for what we've become a part of and, and this church called Emmanuel. And we have, we have gifts to offer and we have responsibilities to bear and we have disciplines that we must, and all those things. But we must never forget that as we are part of this body, of this church, that we belong to Jesus and that we are his church. We are his. 
But you know, there's a comforting aspect about the possession of the church in that we belong to Jesus, that if he possesses us, then there's an assurance that is sure that if he possesses us, then no one can steal us or rob us or destroy us or kill us or prevent us from accomplishing what God wants us to do. And I wish I had time to camp out there a little bit more, but I don't. And number, number five, notice he said, I will build my church. I will build my church. That word there is the word ecclesia, which is church, not kingdom, but church. And the church has taken a lot of bad rap lately. But he says, I, I, I'm building my church. And the word church, ecclesia, was an assembly of people who gathered together for a specific purpose. And the church that he was assembling, and he's going to do it after Pentecost, he's going to develop it in the books of Acts. It is a church. It is an ecclesia. It is an assembly, a gathering of people who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, who have come together as the body of Christ under the umbrella of the church, the ecclesia, the assembling of themselves together. He didn't come to build hospitals. Let me say that again. He didn't come to build hospitals. He didn't come to build um, uh, schools. I mean... We have our own school, Mid Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I went to Southwestern Seminary. I have two sons who, who are going to Southern Seminary, and we have several here who are going to Southern Seminary. And, and, and these people are good at raising money, but I tell you what, <laughs> he didn't come to build a seminary. He didn't come to build a school. He didn't come to build a hospital. He came to build a church. And I think sometimes we as a denomination and sometimes we have people forget that he came to build a church. Those other things have their place and they are good as long as they help in the purpose for which God has established the church, and that is to build up the church. You see, the seminaries exist to build up the church. And so we must understand that he came to build his church. Do you find any comfort in that? I will build my church. There's some assurance here that helps me understand and realize that, that while we have responsibility and we're going to be held accountable for those responsibilities, that in the long run, our faith, our dependency is on Jesus and Jesus alone. Because quite frankly, in the last nine and a half years, I've not always viewed it that way. And I've taken on this incredible burden as if it's my responsibility to generate growth. There's a lot of pressure among pastors today. I remember at a time when I was younger, not, not so long ago, uh, I was talking to a committee that was interested in, in inviting me to be, you know, in the leadership of their institution, and they wanted to know, how many baptisms did you have last year? Why did they want to know that? Because they wanted to judge me? See if I was evangelistic enough? <laughs> I kind of laughed at that. Because the reality is, who's responsible for baptisms in your church? Who? Say that again. Jesus. Let me read to you a couple of verses. Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Who added to the number? The Lord. Wasn't the disciples, it was the Lord. Acts 9.31. And the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in number. The Holy Spirit caused it to grow in numbers. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither the one who plants nor he who waters is anything. Is anything but only God who makes things grow. Who grows the church? Who? God. Nine and a half years later, as I stand in this place, and I've stood here for nine and a half years, and some of you have been looking at me for nine and a half years, and you've seen me grow old in nine and a half years. Right? And guess what? You're looking older too. You are. We're not getting older, we're just getting better. But there's a lot of young pastors out there who are feeling the pressure to grow their churches. A lot of the pressure comes from inside themselves because they see themselves as failures that their church isn't growing by a denomination who measures them by their growth. 
But are they really responsible for the growth of the church? Who grows the church? The Lord does. So who should we look to to grow his church? And that's the reason why a couple of months ago, about, about a month and a half ago, we, we did our prayer uh, um, initiative. We had 350 people signed up to pray. Why do we do that? Because it's the Lord who grows his church. And until we become a praying people who are dependent upon the Lord and the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel, and we are out fulfilling our responsibility, we do not create an environment for the Lord to grow his church. Brother Denny used to farm. You can't make a harvest. You can provide an environment that's conducive for harvest, but who gives the increase? The Lord gives the bounty. He is the Lord of the harvest. And we as a church must look to him in prayer, assuming and fulfilling our responsibility as individual members of this church, using the talents and the gifts that he has given us so that he through us, he through us will grow his church. So that when it does grow, he will be glorified in that growth. Because when we have a, a sense of responsibility that takes us to a level that we shouldn't belong and thinking that we are the ones that generated the growth, guess who gets the glory in that growth? Not God. And so we must understand that there is a sense of comfort here in that I can be assured of the fact I will grow my church. Jesus says that to us. Emmanuel, God will grow his church. I don't have time to read verse 20. I wish I did. But if you look down at verse 20 in that text, he tells them, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. You can go ahead and look. Don't, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. After he said this incredible thing, he says, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. Why would he tell them? He said, because it's not time. It's not time to tell people I'm Messiah. It will come the time in which I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to be proclaimed to a lost world that I am the Messiah, that I am the Savior, that I'm the Christ. But it's not time yet. Why? He's saying, wait. I don't know about you, but I don't like to wait. Do you? Waiting is a thing that does not come natural to me. And so God is saying to them, wait for the right time. And in the meantime, prepare for what is coming. For there will come a time in which you will then proclaim what you have just proclaimed to me to a lost world that desperately needs to know Christ. And through that rock, through that testimony, through the person of Christ and the gospel of Christ, I will build my church. Number three, we have an authority in our fight. This is last. We have an authority in our fight. Interesting, he says in the last part of verse 18, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What an incredible promise. We have an authority in our fight. Who's our greatest enemy? Who's our greatest enemy? Somebody help me out. Self? Satan? Greatest enemy is death. Remember when we were created in the garden, Adam and Eve, was there death? When did death come about? Because of sin. Because of sin, we die. Death is our ultimate enemy. And the word hell here is the word Hades, which means the place of death. There's a lot of interpretations in this passage, and I think there, there's room for, for some negotiation here in, in some of those applications. But he said, the gates of Hades, the, the gates of death, shall not prevail against it. That word shall not means that it, will shall, it shall not overcome, it shall not dominate, it shall not overpower, it will not absolutely under any circumstance prevent or prevail or overpower the church. And what are we doing as a church? We are invading the pits of Hades, redeeming lost souls through the gospel of Jesus Christ in the person of Jesus Christ who are hell-bound because of their sin. And he has them in their clutches. A gate is, is, is something that fortified a city to prevent the enemy from coming in. But Satan is sly, it's a little bit trickier than that. He not only has a gate to prevent us from coming in and redeeming lost souls, he has a gate to keep them in hell. He doesn't want to let them loose. 
He wants to keep them bound and held captive and eternally damned because of their sin. And they are held bound because of their sin. And death reigns over them. But Jesus conquered death. How? We became his church because he lived and he died. But he rose from the dead and we were bought with a price. And that price that we were bought with liberates us where death is now no longer a sting to us. Oh, death, where is thy victory? It's not victorious over us anymore, is it? Now, we physically die, but we will one day be resurrected. And so we, through the power of the gospel, are invading the domain of the enemy, redeeming lost souls. And we're, 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 boom, come on. And Satan's holding on to him, but he's, he's not, he's not going to win He can't overcome the power of Christ and the power of the gospel. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. It can't keep us from our mission. It cannot. It will not. Don't believe the lie. Satan is a deceiver. And self sometimes sees the impossibilities rather than the possibility of the power of the gospel and the person of Christ. One last, John eleven thirty eight. Turn your Bibles there and I'm going to close with this. I went a little bit longer than I thought I would, but I'm just kind of filled up, so I just dumped it out on you here and just, just all this time, right? John eleven thirty eight. Jesus is in Bethany and he hears that Lazarus is sick. And he takes two days before he responds. In the meantime, Lazarus dies. Martha's upset and goes out to him and tells him, you let him die. He calls for Mary, and Mary goes out thinking that Jesus is going to talk to her, but he says, where's where's Lazarus? She takes Jesus to Lazarus. Verse 38, and Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. I used to work with the DeSoto Police Department. I've gone into places where people have been there for four days and longer, and there's a stench. It's not not pretty. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, notice these words. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Some of your translations say, loose him. Let him go. Loose him. Death had a grip on him. And Jesus loosened the grip and put life into his dead body. And that is a beautiful, wonderful illustration of the power of the gospel of Jesus. For Jesus in a verse... Just preceding this one, the same narrative said, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in all in me, though he die, yet he shall live. For everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We have an authority in the world in which we live. And that authority has been given to us by Christ himself. When he gave us the Great Commission in Matthew 28, in just a couple of chapters from this, when he tells the same men, when he told this to, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have taught you. He gave them his authority. He gave them his power. And I wonder why are we such wimps? Why are we afraid? What are we scared of? Why are we not acting more like conquerors than those who have been defeated? I'm not saying be cocky because we know where the power comes from and we know the person who gave us the power and we rely on him and the power of the gospel, not on ourselves. But in our humility and in our obedience as we go into the lost world called Wichita, 
we go with his authority into a fight where we are letting loose those who have been enslaved by sin and damned to hell. And death is their victor. And I wonder when we as a church, when I as your pastor, will wake up one day and recognize and realize that we are invincible. We are invincible because he is invincible. And as we begin 2017, in what I call the small remnant that's here today, because many of our faithfuls are not here. I get it. They're traveling and they're with family last night and all that. But we have an assurance from Jesus that he will, in his time, if we will be faithful and wait on him, he will grow his church. How long do we have to wait? I've been waiting nine and a half years. But I've seen some growth. I've seen people who have been saved. I've seen the transforming work of the Spirit of God, the power of the gospel of God in people's hearts and lives in this church. And some of you are here today. He is working. He has not abdicated his throne. And he says to us today, as we begin a new year, I will build my church. Look to me. Rely on me. Wait on me. It will come. Let's pray.